0: Brooks and Nina have a son named Bo. They have been working in the Yemba Yemba. You hear me pray for them or mention them every week. Uh, when we pray, now you'll get to meet who we, one of the guys we've been praying for. Brooks has been there for seven years uh, with his family. Uh, they've been doing an incredible work there that the Lord has been doing really through them. We're thankful to be able to partner with them. Um, so you know a little bit of the backstory. Brooks is the son of Brad Buser, who was a friend of mine for some time. He was at this church probably three years ago. We were a different building. Some of you may remember him from there. Most of you probably don't. But Brad's son, Brooks, is also... So, you know, Brad went to the Eteti tribe in Papua New Guinea and and spread the gospel there and and planted the church there and translated Bible there. And then um, Brooks grew up in that environment. And then Brooks and his brother, Brandon, uh, Brandon, who will be here in January speaking are now taking two different tribes who've never heard the gospel and have been working among them. And so it's a privilege to, to have these guys here, Brooks this month and Brandon next month. And so with that said, Brooks is going to share with us from the Word.
1: We are elated to be here. Nina, raise your hand. Just wave to everybody so everybody knows who you are. Um, our son's in the back uh, probably wreaking havoc with Jared. We're probably going to rent Jared for the rest of our time here on furlough. They get along famously. Um, no, I was overseas. And when I first heard about Chad, Dad wrote me about this guy that he met, and uh, Chad got him into trouble a little bit, and Dad got Chad into trouble a little bit, and a few other things. And uh, I was hearing about this guy the whole way back, and I had this mental impression built up of who this guy was, and I remember... Meeting him for the first time, and I was thinking of uh, this pencil neck, five foot three, hundred pound guy that was going to come walking out of uh, I don't know a Fiat or something like that, and he's got this white truck, and he's about I don't know six four or whatever. And then and then I heard that he actually uh, he actually is involved in MMA a little bit here and there, and I'm like, yeah, Dad, you met a great guy. If we can just get him saved, it'll be even better. So, no, I it was uh, yeah, it was a treat meeting Chad, and I've had a couple chances to uh, interact with him a bit, and just spent a. Uh, Last uh, yesterday with his wife and him and uh, just getting to know his family a little bit. We're excited to be here. Wanted to say a quick uh, thank you to you guys. Uh, The church here helped us with a laptop. Our laptop blew up while we were still overseas there. Uh, The tropics aren't real friendly to electronics. So thank you guys very much. Appreciate that. Appreciate getting the opportunity to speak with you, share with you today. We're going to show you a video a little bit uh, further in about what God has done in Yemby Yemby, but uh, I want to give you some background before we get into it. We're going to open the word here in a little bit on who we are and uh, where we come from and how we ended up on the field uh, if we're these strange missionary people that, I don't know, um, dress in plaid or do whatever. We're kind of normal people, at least we think we are, and uh, give you some of that background a little bit. Uh, like Chad said, I was raised overseas, uh, raised in Papua New Guinea from the time I was two all the way up to 18, went to boarding school, would go off for three months, fly on an airplane, uh, come back, and then uh, spend time with mom and dad and the tribe off again for another stint. And I did that from first grade all the way to 12th. Uh, we would come home to the states here every four years. But uh, most of my upbringing was in Papua New Guinea and just going back and forth to the boarding school. So getting to see the Itedi tribe, the tribe that I was raised in, and what uh, the transformation that happened there when the gospel actually came in and uh, changed things. The gospel changes people groups, and it changes them radically. And if I didn't believe that before with Itedi, the tribe that we work in, the Yembi Yembi tribe, um, some incredible things have happened. We've been home since April now. We go back uh, probably... Two months from tomorrow, we go head, We go back to, uh, to Yemby Yemby. So this is kind of our, our time home. We get to see family. Most of our family lives down in San Diego, and we're going to see some of uh, Nina's family up in uh, Turlock later on today. So it'll be a real treat. But anyways, I was raised overseas, um, came back after I graduated from high school, wanted to join the Marine Corps, and uh, my dad talked me out of it. He promised me that he would help me out with two years of college. If I went to two years of college and then whatever I wanted to do after that, would be fine and so he was smarter than I was and knew that I'd meet a girl and I did Um, I just had to get her lackey boyfriend out of the way first and then God's will was done but uh, yeah I met Nina uh, my freshman year and after I moved uh, what's his name out of the picture um, we ended up getting married after she graduated and we continued to go through she got a degree in counseling psychology I got one in business administration with an emphasis in accounting And so like most uh, students, we came out of there, and we had uh, quite a few loans after we came out of college. And we didn't feel comfortable with going into any area of ministry. We weren't really thinking missions, but whatever we wanted to do, we didn't want to do it with loans hanging on to the back of us. So I started looking for jobs, and I got a job with a company called Trespa North America. And Trespa was a young company that was looking for young people to invest in, to bring up through the ranks, and to kind of be lifers in the company. And they picked myself and three other guys and Trespa was a dream job. It was a dream job for me, dream job for our family. We had Bo, our son, uh, while we were still with them. Trespa would let you go surfing in the mornings as long as you did it with other members of the company. You could blow two hours surfing in the morning, and it still counted as company time, Um, which was unbelievable in San Diego. So, we were looking at this, and uh, slowly our pace, my pace, started to rise. I started to work overseas a lot. I worked in uh, Belgium, I worked in Netherlands, worked a lot in Paris, France, worked some in Germany, and was getting ready to sit for my upper management evals with the company. And uh, guys, something, something kind of radical happened. It didn't happen overnight. I wish uh, sometimes when I'm in Yemby Yemby, I wish. I could point back to some, something where I walked out of the ocean and there was a map of Papua New Guinea on the ground or some complete stranger on the road came up to me and said, God told me to tell you to go to Papua New Guinea or something like that. But it didn't happen that way. We never got a definitive, we or God wants you to move overseas. God wants you to be a missionary somebody, to somewhere. What we got was, through our daily time in the word, through our devotions together, through our devotions apart, we started to see that God's heartbeat really was for the nations to get the gospel to the nations and not just to the nations, to the unreached, to the people that wouldn't have a chance to hear unless we went to them. And separately, we came to that conclusion and when we had our devotions together, it started to become apparent to us that we were on a path that, uh, yeah, God was sending us overseas. And so I walked into my boss's office I handed in my resignation, three-month resignation, and I was, again, slated for a lot of things. Uh, At that point, we'd finished off our school loans a long time ago. Um, Our house in La Jolla, we were looking at buying. The car that I was looking at buying, the car that Nina was looking at buying, we had the private school that our son was going to go to, and he was still just a fetus. Um, Our life was planned out, basically, for us. And we were we were excited about it. It was going to be a fun life. I still uh, I still think about that once in a while. But um, especially when you're in 110 degrees and the humidity is just boiling you over in Yemi Yemi. But God didn't have that for us. And after I handed in my resignation, after my boss got down cussing me out for about 10 minutes and. He started listing off the different things that we were going to be giving up, the different things that we were walking away from, and obviously the 401k was going to take a huge hit, Um, the pay level, the health insurance, all these different things were going to go down the drain, and then he got to one thing that I'd forgotten about, that I hadn't thought about, because I was a new father at that point, and he laid out for me specifically what we were giving up for our son, and our boy was about a year old at that time. And I remember him listing off the various diseases that he could get or how he could get hurt over there, how he might not come back if we actually follow through with this plan. And I go, remember going back and talking with Nina and sitting with her uh, in our little apartment and just talking about this is going to affect us, but it's going to affect our son. He's not going to go to private school. He's not going to grow up playing water polo and football and basketball and all these other things and be a charger someday like I was hoping he was going to be. Um, We were sacrificing his future. And guys, there is a price tag associated with taking the gospel somewhere where it's never been before. There's a price tag with being a believer. And I came to the conclusion that if there isn't a price tag, we have a valid reason to question what we believe. There has to be a price tag with what we do, with who we are as believers. If there isn't, man, question the value of what you believe in. If there isn't a price tag associated with it, Man, we really got to question what we believe in. And so Nina and I came to grips with that one, and we enrolled in a New Tribes Training. We went through two years of New Tribes Training, uh, learned how to take the gospel to a place that's never had it before. How do you build an airstrip? How do you build a house where there's no Walmarts, no Home Depots, no nothing around? How do you survive in an environment like that? We are, before it was hip and cool, we were the greenest of the green. Uh, We still are the greenest of the green. we got solar panels. We live off the sun. Uh, We've got a corrugated aluminum roof. We catch the rainwater. It goes into a water tank and uh, we learned all these things through the New Tribes training. Finished up New Tribes training and because I had so much background in uh, Papua New Guinea we decided that we'd go there. Moved to Papua New Guinea in 2003 and uh, we started learning the national language of the country. That's the national language of the country. If you're going to take the gospel somewhere in this day and age where it's never been before, typically now you have to learn two languages, not just one. You've got to learn the language of the country that you're going to and you've got to learn the specific language of the people group that you're going to be working with as well. And so that's pigeon. you can hear it. This talk me you now. This talk that I'm outing to you now. Suppose Yao blow you op. Supposed to if your ears are op, if they're open, you harim this You enough, harim to hear this talk. supposed pass, if your ears are closed if you're not concentrating. by Sorry, sorry, true. It's gonna be really hard. So that's Melanesian pigeon. You can kinda hear it. You can pick it up pretty fast. It's like a I don't know. Hawaiian Jar Jar Binks type language or something like that. So we learned that and uh, then after we'd learned it and we were fully orientated to the country, New Tribes leadership came to us. There's about 35 other couples that are there and 17 tribes that we work in in the region of Papua New Guinea where we had settled in, the Sepik region, the swamp region as it's uh, affectionately known. And they gave us a list. And guys, this is one of the saddest things that I've ever seen in my life. They gave us a list of tribes that had six tribes on it that had been asking for five years or more. If they haven't been asking for missionaries for five years or more, they don't make the list. They have to ask for five consecutive years, and then they make the list to choose from. And we got this list, and we're going, oh my goodness, because the gravity of what we had there was... One of these groups, most likely, Lord willing, is going to get the chance to hear the gospel, but five others aren't. And when we came home on furlough in April of this year, three of the tribes are still on that list. From 2003 to when we moved there till 2010, they're still on the list, still waiting, still asking, still faithfully requesting somebody to come give them this some of the tribes used to call what we did and what we would do the secret talk they said it's a secret because you white skins you guys have this and if it's something that we should know we would have had a long time ago but obviously it's a secret so we want to know about it but nobody's come to tell us about it and that's what they would call the gospel that's what they still call the gospel to this day and so we got this list and Nina and I uh, sat down, and we sat down with our coworkers. We don't go into a tribe by ourselves. We go in with two other families. And we sat down, and we prayed over the list, and we actually picked another tribe called Tuwati. And so we loaded up in the plane about uh, two weeks later with the pilot and the orientation survey guy and the two other guys from the team. We all loaded up, and we flew over Tuwadi. We looked down at it. got a good grasp of it, took some pictures, flew over to the landing strip because there's a landing strip about 20 miles away where we we're going to have to hike from. Got to the landing strip, and it was flooded, and uh, the plane's circling over top, and we've already burned enough fuel, and so we're not going to head back to our base camp. And we, right there in the plane, just prayed as quickly as we could, God, what do you got for us? And we decided that we're going to go to Yemby Yemby, And so the plane circled, and we headed back, and we started going over the mountain ranges, Flew over Yembe took a bunch of pictures. On our way there, we'd been scribbling out on our legs the quick little notes that were coming were the guys you've been asking for for five years. We're gonna come and we'll probably be here before nightfall. Um, treat us gently when we arrive, please. And uh, we dropped these notes out of the airplane window. Two of them got hung up in the trees and one of them made it down and we saw a little kid running with this note that said we're coming. And so we knew that they at least had some idea. Flew to the landing strip, landed. Loaded up in canoes, motor canoes, about from here to the to the back wall, they're really long things, and uh, <clears throat> we canoed for about six hours. Then we hiked the last two hours, and we pulled into Yemby right as the sun was going down. The Yemby um we didn't know this about them, but they are a very dominant, um, strong, aggressive people. They show emotion very quickly. Uh, they don't hold any punches, and when they greet you, if they like you, they really like you. If they don't like you, they really don't like you. So, usually we've been on the really like side, so that's the nice part of it. But when we pulled into Yembe Yembe, what they do is, and if we drag Chad and his wife over there someday, uh, they'll get the same treatment, but they take a hunk of mud. They start with your forehead and they push that piece of mud down into your face all the way down to your Adam's apple. And they take a coconut, and they'll crack that coconut over your head. Remember, it's 110, about 90 deg- 90% humidity every day, so it's just smoking hot. And that sticky coconut comes down over your face, this water. And then the last thing they do is just to make you beautiful is what they say. They take uh, uh, little flower petals and leaves, and then they pelt them right at your face. And all that sticky stuff, it just sticks right to your face, and you look really hot after that's all over. That was, that was what was happening. We got off, and we were just big smiles, all happy. Okay, whatever, yeah, we're going with it. And we settled in with the Yembies for three days, myself and the two other guys. Settled in among them, took a bunch of pictures, a bunch of video, went back out to the tr- uh, to the uh, base camp there, talked to our wives about if uh, God would have us move into the Yembys, talked to the leadership, and we moved back. Uh, after we decided that uh, yeah this was the thing we moved back in as three guys and started building the houses and an interesting thing happened guys the MBMs came to us and they said if you're really going to come live among us if you're really going to be our missionaries and you're bringing the secret talk to us we don't want you to come as outsiders the MBMs had had they'd actually had a short-term missions team come over to MBM they landed in a helicopter they came out They did uh, some mimes. They didn't know the language. They didn't even know the national language. They didn't know Bises, which is the language of Yemby Yemby. They did uh, some little acting. And then whoever raised their hand at the end, because they knew Jesus, obviously, um, they got a piece of candy. And then the Yemby started crowding closer to them when they had the candy. And so they stood up on a porch away from them and were throwing candy out to the crowd. Then they loaded back up in the helicopter about four hours later and left. And that was their gospel presentation. And so the Yembi said, if you're really going to come and you're going to bring us this talk, we don't want you to come like that. We don't want you to come like a tourist. We don't want you to come as somebody that comes in and buys our carvings or somebody that comes in and talks to us for a couple hours about health stuff that we don't know anything about. We want you to come as insiders. And so when we moved into Yembi Yembi, the first thing that they did was they adopted us into families. There's four clans in Yembi Yembi. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. My wife is... A prominent member of the Eagle Clan. And uh, I'm part of the Ostrich Clan. And so within the Ostrich Clan, we were adopted into different families. She's got about six uh, fathers and a bazillion brothers who always (laughs) remind me how much I owe them for uh, not paying for her at the get-go. But anyways, um, because we were married, they gave us new families. Then they gave us new names as well. Within the tribe, you've got two names. You've got an outside name that you work with when you're working with white skins, is what they say, or you're working out at town, and then you've got a tribal name as well, but that's rarely used. But you need one if you're going to be an insider. And the final thing that they did was they wanted us to get remarried. They said, you got married somewhere across the salt water. We don't know where. We don't even know how they did it, so we don't even think it's legit. You might not even be married right now, so we're going to remarry you right here. So the day Nina moved in, and you'll see some of this on the video that we show, um, we actually got remarried. All of the couples that moved in, her mothers and aunts dragged her off to a corner of the village, decorated her up so she was nice and beautiful. Um, bird feathers coming out of her hair and all sorts of stuff. Nice little mud job on her. Um, and then she had to walk across to all of my sisters, all their legs, to get to me. And that's just custom. But moving into Yemby Yemby, it struck me that to do this, we could not have done this if this was a short-term venture. This was built for the long-term. For some reason in the United States, we have become addicted to short-term solutions to really long-term problems. To send short-term missionaries, it makes us feel a whole lot better. But guys, we really got to question why we do these things. Do we do them for the people that we're going to reach or do we do it for the group that we actually send? If we're doing it for the group that we send, the most important thing isn't what they see, isn't what they do, isn't how many people they witness to, it's who we send with them as the teacher. It's usually the most teachable moment that we have. When we send short-term, short-term missionaries over, when we have groups come to Yembe they're so in culture shock and they're so open to new ideas. The most important thing is who teaches them at that point. But please, let's not substitute that for teaching the gospel, for getting the gospel to the nations. That is a preliminary step to hopefully opening somebody's eyes so that they see the long-term benefits. We had to move in. We had to live with them. Um, we had to show ourselves to be human. A lot of them thought that we were spirits. Some of them hadn't seen white people before when we moved in at that point. And when we bled for the first time, when we got malaria for the first time, when uh, we, when the guys, when we raised our voices for the first time, wow, these guys are real. Their skin's a little bit different than ours, but they're really people. And to do that, it's not going to be done in a short-term trip. You're going to have to live with these guys. You're going to have to learn their culture. You're going to have to learn their language. You're going to have to build credibility to speak. And without that, eesh, man, I get nervous. I get so nervous when I hear of short-term teams evangelizing and taking the gospel somewhere. How do we do that? When we've got a ticket burning a hole in our pocket saying we're going back in two weeks. We've really got to be careful of that. So we moved into Yemi Yemi, built our house, built an airstrip. That took us about nine months to do. And it took us two years to actually learn the language and culture. Two years of not teaching the gospel, not teaching one single thing, not discipling anybody at that point, strictly being Learners. We were the big guys. We were the guys, obviously, that had the most money, the most education. Nobody there was educated past grade two and um, all these different things. But we came in as learners. We learned how to speak like they spoke. We learned their culture. We learned everything about it. Within Yemby Yemby, you don't call somebody by their name. That's very offensive. You call them by how you're related to them. All of her family. I had to learn all the names for the different ways that I'm associated with her mothers and her fathers and all these different kind of things. She's got to learn the same things. Your cousins, your in-laws, all these different villages and how they're related to you within it. You've got to learn these things, not so that you can have this great anthropological data, but so that you can have the credibility to speak when the gospel does come, when it's time to actually teach that you've got this built-up credibility in your bank account, so to speak, and you can teach based on that. They know you. They respect you because you've taken the time to actually learn what they learn. So finally, in... uh, January of 2008, we started teaching and before we got to the teaching, we put anyone who wanted uh, through a literacy course where we taught them how to read and write in their own language. BCS is their language and it took them about a month and a half, some of them, it took them three months to learn how to read and to write a little bit in their own language so that when we taught we could translate the scriptures ahead of time and they could read the scriptures for themselves and it wouldn't be our voice against whoever comes in after us it would be our voice coupled with what they were reading in the book and that would combat whatever comes after and if it measures up to that so be it but if it doesn't measure up they always had the paper they said the paper always talks the same. The paper always talks the same way every time your voice, your ways, they, they change a little bit here and there but the paper will always talk true and that's what they said about the word that's what they said about anything in printed, uh, anything that we did print. So we started teaching in January. We taught from the very very beginning. How do you teach an animistic people that knows nothing of the outside world? Our guys knew of their group, they knew of the tribes that surrounded them and they knew of one tribal group after that. Most of the rest of the world Fell off the map. The first thing that we did, the first day that we taught, we put a huge world map up and we asked some of the chiefs of the tribe and then some of the hotshot young guys to come up and to point to Papua New Guinea on the map. You know where most of them pointed? Africa. They pointed to the North American continent. Some of them pointed to China and the huge Asian landmass over there. They could not believe when we pointed to this little rinky dink island. No, this is you guys. This is you guys. And to get them to grasp their world and how small it was, how big the outside world was. And where this talk actually originated from, we drew a line all the way from Papua New Guinea across to this little country over there called Israel. And that's where this talk came from. Teaching them, we taught for five days a week, two hours a day. Talked for three months. We taught from Genesis all the way through the redemptive analogies. God making mankind mankind's fall, um, Cain and Abel, Abraham and Isaac, Moses in the Red Sea, all of the major redemptive analogies, the story of Christ working his way through the Old Testament, how he worked with the Israelites— Man, they were ready to kill the Israelites about halfway through. When they were moaning and groaning and coming out of Egypt, I mean, the, the calls for their destruction were frequent. The Yembees aren't like you guys. You guys sit well. You, you're quiet. You, if your kid's crying, you're heading to the back to the cry room. Or if you disagree with me, at least you're going to keep it yourself. Well, maybe, hopefully. Um, the Yembis are very interactive people. If they agree with what you say, they will stand up or they'll just say it from right there and say, I agree with that. That's 100% correct. I read that in the book last night. The papers are saying the same thing that he's saying. I'm with you. If they don't agree, with, no, 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 that's just junk. And they'll say it. While you're actually speaking. And so there's this live conversation. This whole life going on out there. And you kind of got to have a loud voice. Because there's no mic or no nothing like that. And there's about 600 to 1,000. About The tribe varies. It fluctuates radically. So as we're teaching, all this stuff is coming up. And they're starting to see that this story isn't going the way that they typically thought it was going to go. And that they have what they call a debt. A debt with uh, this guy. When we first taught we taught the first day that we taught actually after we set up the maps we set up two poles these huge posts that we put in the ground and there was one post on the right side of the teaching hall another post on the left hand side and the whole point of the teaching was how we get from this side to that side and as we taught more and more about God and Satan this side became Satan's side this is the side that we were born into no matter who we came from no matter if we're white or black or red whoever we were born onto this side and just the things that we do in daily life cement the fact that we belong to this side how do we get to this side how do we get to god's side and so as we were teaching guys were coming up with different ideas and they started to call this the, they started to call this the road to crossover and how do we get to the other side? And we kept teaching uh, through the different Old Testament analogies. And finally, when Jesus was born, the day that he was born, we had about the whole tribe turn out for the teaching that day. And we told them, guys, this is the guy. This is the guy that's going to show us how to get to the other side. And we rem- I remember clearly, so very clearly, like it was yesterday, teaching the story of the paralytic and when we would teach you'll see it on the video as well we would teach and then we would act it out afterwards because the guys are visual learners like I said they're not like you guys they don't sit quietly and they start to get bored they'll start to chew beetle nut and holler at their kids and chase dogs around the teaching house and stuff like that so we had to break it up once in a while with skits and we would act these things out and we finished acting out the the story of the paralytic and the man's lowered down and Jesus does the miracle to him and uh Jesus so, shows the Pharisees, and our guys hated the Pharisees because we made them out to be the bad guys. And Jesus came to do all the all the good things, and the Pharisees just hampering him and all this other stuff. And as you're doing these dramas, you've got to really watch out, because usually I play the Pharisees, and once in a while they'll throw things at you and do different things. <laughs> and so they're coming down and I'm standing here and I'm talking out loud because, yeah, Jesus, you're just faking. You're going to do some stuff. And then Jesus, my co-worker Tony, <laughs> Jesus comes over to him and uh, Jesus says, so that you guys can know that I heal things on the inside, I take men from that side to this side. I'm going to do something on the outside so that you can know that I work on the inside as well. And one of our guys that had been faithfully following the teaching, his name was Paul. That's his white name. Yagotel, or. Yarakai is his other name, um, he stood up and he goes, I get it, I get it. This guy that's coming, this guy, he is the actual guy that takes people from one side to the other. He's the bridge man. And that's what they coined for Jesus. We don't have a term for savior. They call him the bridge man. And every one of the believers from the, from the point that they got saved on, they don't call themselves believers. They call themselves crossers. People who have crossed from one side to the other. And the church isn't the church. The teaching house isn't the church. The church or the building is the teaching house. And the church is the gathering of the crossers. The gathering of the crossers. When they gather and when they meet, that is the church. But that's where the terms came from. And we kept teaching them through these different things. And finally, on uh, April 26, 2008, we presented the Death, burial, and Resurrection. It took us about five hours, and we acted the whole thing out as we taught. We could see that certain people were getting it. You could actually see in their faces as the lights were coming on. And about that, uh, about that time, we estimate that about 30% of the tribe got saved the day that we presented the gospel. And it, was, uh, it turned the tribe on its head in so many ways that I don't have time to mention them all. But that was a day of days. I will never forget uh, some things that happened that day, some of the miracles that went down. But I want to show you that video right now just to give you a little picture of it and you guys can see some of the stuff that I've been talking about to this point. If you got your Bibles? <coughs> we're going to definitely get into the Word a little bit this morning. Matthew 28. I want to talk to you about some of the verses that uh, impacted Nina and myself as we were contemplating leaving behind San Diego, leaving behind uh, what we knew to that point. And uh, some of the rationale, uh, some of the things that we've come across this furlough, this time that we've been home, we've come home twice, and every time we come back to the U.S., uh, a lot of things change. We go for three years, maybe four years at a time, depending on what the Yembe Church needs. But uh, there's always different things that change, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of that this morning. Matthew 28, (laughs) verse 16 Jesus is talking here to his disciples, and uh, he's getting ready to leave the earth. He's getting ready to leave these guys behind. And uh, he's giving them his last instructions, his last marching orders, the last thing on his mind before he heads back to his home and leaves behind the guys that he impacted the most while he was still here. And in verse 16, it says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Guys, I want to highlight three things this morning in this verse. Number one, Jesus doesn't, uh, he doesn't lay down his premise or he doesn't lay down what he wants us to do without laying out his credentials first. You notice in the first part it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When we taught this to the Yembies, we taught them after the day that they'd been saved, that uh, if you call yourself a crosser, if you call yourself a believer, if you call yourself one who follows Jesus Christ, you are a person under authority. You don't get to call the shots in your life. You don't get to do the things that you're gifted with, that you're passionate about, that you feel you could do best to help the kingdom of God. You don't get to make those calls. If we did get to make those calls, I would still be in San Diego right now. I'd be living somewhere else, I'd be doing something else. But I don't get to make those calls. We as a church don't get to decide what we think is best. Or how best God can use us. Or he can use our children. We are people under authority. They are people under authority if we call ourselves believers. And after Jesus lays out his credentials here, in verse 19 he goes on and he says, Because, the therefore is really a because, because, because of that, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And guys, there's three things that I've noticed this furlough, this time that we've been home, that are presuppositions. Things that we as the church have to understand and be in agreement on and really have as a foundation as we read these verses. And I haven't found them very often. I teach down in Mexico about once a week, I teach uh, around to different churches teaching on this passage. And I'm surprised how these three areas, They're not there for a lot of people. Number one, that the heathen are truly lost. If somebody doesn't hear the gospel, never had a chance to hear the gospel, they still go to hell. That is a presupposition. Based on Romans, which you guys have recently had, recently taught through, the heathen, the people that don't actually have a chance to hear the gospel, they still end up going to a Christless eternity, whether the gospel gets to them or not. There is not a back door into heaven. There's only one door, only a front door. Without that in our mind, everybody agrees that everybody should have a chance to hear the gospel, but not everybody agrees that if people don't get a chance, they're not going to go to heaven. Guys, we've got to be really clear on that. If we're not clear on that, then continue to talk to your church staff here. Continue to read through your Romans teachings. There is not a back door. Number two, we are God's plan to take the gospel to the nations. We, as the church, are God's plan. There is no plan B. There's not an angel from heaven that's going to come down. There's no other way that people are going to hear the gospel unless we take it to them. I remember when we were teaching the Yemby Yembies. And we had a timeline. We built a timeline for them because this story, we did it chronologically. And for every year that mankind has been on the earth, we had a bead. It was about the size of my pinky nail. And we hung these beads on a string. And the teaching hall was about, I don't know, maybe half the size of this auditorium. About, it was skinnier and longer, and so we put people in the back. But the chain, the actual beaded timeline, strung the whole way around. Every thousand years, there was a huge blue bead so every year that mankind was on the earth, as we taught these different things, we would put diff- more beads on the chain. And so we would teach through Adam. We'd hang Adam's picture off, of that, uh, off the timeline right there. And then we'd teach uh, Abraham and Isaac, and we'd hang the, a picture of that story off of there. And the timeline strung all the way around. And we got to the place where the Yemby Yembies came in, when Papua New Guinea broke away as an independent nation, 1976. This is when you guys came on. And for them to see the whole history of mankind in one sweep, this is when the oldest guy in the tribe, when he was born, this is when you guys stopped cannibalizing the neighboring tribes around you. It happened this year. And this is the year that the gospel actually came to you guys, and we put the last bead on the chain. And when we taught them, before we got to the gospel, you know who they were most angry at? They would go back, all the way back to the Tower of Babel, to their ancestors, and how they didn't keep this talk, how they didn't understand this talk, how they didn't cherish it. So the Yembe Yembies from the Tower of Babel all the way around to 2008, they didn't get to hear this talk. They held them responsible. But when we got to the gospel, you know who they turned the finger on? They turned the finger on us. You guys had this talk When? When did America actually get this talk? When did you guys have the ability to fly in airplanes and actually move over here to give us this? You've had it since then, and it's taken us this long? It took us that long, and they turned that on us. And guys, i tell you what, it wasn't a a fun conversation for us that day. We are, we as the church, are the hope for the nations to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. It will happen by no other means. And number three, the third point, and this is something that I heard when I was going through the training, nobody deserves to hear a second time until everybody's had a chance to hear a first time. The day after, it wasn't the day, it was probably about five days after we presented the gospel, we, uh, Nina and I were going to bed, and our house is up on poles, these big poles. There's 12 of them, and they hold the house up, and it's about eight feet off the ground so that we get a little wind underneath it. That's how they build their houses And snakes and other little critters, they have a harder time getting into it, so we don't build on the ground. But we're up high off the ground... And uh, the Yembees can walk under our house at any time. And so at late at night, if they need me from any time 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, whatever, all they do is they hide a pole in the, in the brush somewhere beside our house. And then they figured out where my bed is in relation to the floor. And they take that pole and pop it right under the floor. It about sends you through the roof the first 20 times. It still sends me through the roof. But uh, I'm laying in bed. And sure enough, it's about five nights after we presented the gospel and these, uh, somebody comes up, holds the pole under the house, and I can hear skirmish. Oh, here it comes. Just wait. No, maybe it's somebody just walking under the house. It's not going to be anything. It's like 12 o'clock at night. Boom, boom. And I mean, my whole bed comes off the of ground, and it's just a nerve-wracking experience altogether. So I go outside, got my flashlight, and it's rude in Yembe Yembe to shine the flashlight on somebody's face, because it ruins their night vision and all this other stuff. And so I'm shining it on their feet and trying to figure out from their feet who the guys are. And there's a good group of guys that had come up that night. And usually we get out of bed quickly because if they get bit by a death adder, they get uh, some really bad malaria or something like that. We got to get out there and try and help them so they can make it through the night or make it out. And so I go outside and, guys, what's going on? And I'm shining the flashlight on their feet and then working my way up to get to see their shorts. Okay, that guy only has one pair of shorts. That's him and this is so-and-so. And I look around, and they're all believers. They were all guys that we believed at that point had gotten saved. And it was most of the guys from my clan, from the ostrich clan. And one of my fathers is there. His name's Lucas. And Pops Luke is there. And so he becomes the spokesman. And we sit down, and Pops Luke, what's going on? Is somebody sick? Is there some, a lady giving birth in the tribe? What's happening? No, 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 no. We just want to come talk to you. And he sat me down, and the first thing he said was, We want to know when we're going. And I said, Going where? And he said, When are we going? To Changriman. Changriman is our sister village that speaks the same language. When are we going to Changriman to take this talk to them? Is it going to be next week? Is it going to be next month? When are we going to Changriman? Because if we don't go, they're not going to hear this talk. And guys, remember that 33, 30 to 35% of the tribe had gotten the gospel, which means there's a whole other 65% of the tribe that hadn't gotten the gospel, that didn't understand it. But they understood very clearly that they'd had their chance. They had had a chance to understand, to hear, and to cross over. And their thoughts were no longer on who was left in the tribe that didn't get it. We go to the places that haven't had a chance to hear. I think our God is a God like that. Nobody deserves to hear a second time until everybody's had a chance to hear a first time. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. This last term that we were over there after we finished presenting the gospel, <clears throat> I got the opportunity to uh translate and was able to translate the books of uh most of the book of Acts, the book of Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, uh part of Philippians and Colossians, and first and second Thessalonians. But the first book that I kinda cut my teeth on that was an epistle. We did some stuff back in Genesis, it was a lot easier, but the first epistle, kinda throw you into the deep end right off the bat was Romans, and Romans Romans is tough. It is a tough book to translate, especially when you're shooting for the meaning of what Paul was trying to get across to his original audience. You're shooting for that meaning to come through. Everything else is secondary to the meaning of what Paul was saying here. And uh, the first 14 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul goes on this incredibly difficult doctrinal journey to understand and to get that meaning across to the mbm but in 15 chapter 15 here and 16 on he kind of lets down his hair he kind of lowers his guard a little bit and this guy becomes human to us and he talks about some of the things that uh, were important to him he talks about some of the things that were hard for him and he talks about some of the things that were going well for him and i want to hit this verse and then i want to tell you one story and we'll uh we'll get close here um <clears throat> Paul says here in verse 20, after he's talked about the Galatians and he's talked about the God's grace to allow him to teach the Galatians, he talks about one of the things that motivates him, the thing that pushes him on in this. In Romans chapter 20, Paul says this, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand paul's ambition was to take the gospel to some place that had never had the chance to hear before some place that didn't already have a foundation and i hate to burst your bubble guys if you think otherwise but the united states has the gospel i had to my bible gets eaten by mold and it goes in canoes and gets run down and everything so i got a new bible a couple of weeks ago went in to get a new bible just just the flavors, the colors, the styles, the the brands, all the different things that I could get just in San Diego in my Bible. Not to mention, man, we stock up on Bible studies for my wife. She's over there and there's not a lot of uh, small group type meetings that uh, happen in English over there. And so we stock up on those things. The helps, the amount of teachers. Man, f- forget the technology. I don't even know how to Twitter. I don't know anything about blogs or any of that stuff. But I hear, you can hear it on that too. Her senior pastor, uh, we her home church is Shadow Mountain Community Church, David Jeremiah. Anywhere you go within the continental United States, if you've got two opposable fingers, you can catch him on TV. You can catch him on the radio. The gospel is here. It's here in spades. It's here more than we could ever want. The foundation has been laden. Anybody who has ears to hear, there is some sort of foundation there. But guys, there are corners of the world where it's not there yet. When we Finished uh, teaching the MB New Tribes Leadership came to myself and one other guy. His name was Mark, and he worked in another village about three mountain ranges over. And they came to me and Mark, and they said, guys, we need somebody to go into these tribes that have been sending letters asking for missionaries to investigate, to get a language sample, and to kind of do some research on these. So if they're viable places to go into, we can put them on the list, and we can kind of give a little cheat sheet to new missionaries on... Um, uh, what's happening there. So Mark and I, being the naive kind of new missionaries, we presented the gospel, but we hadn't done much after that, decided we'd do it. We'll we'll do it. We'll be the guys to go into this. And so they gave us our first assignment about a month before Nina and I came back here to the United States. So this memory is very fresh in my mind still. And uh, Mark and I got our first assignment and they gave us the tribe of Gadamambu. There's this tribal group called Gadamambu that had been asking for missionaries for about three years at that point. And they'd been sending out letters faithfully. And one of their representatives had said, hey, if you could send somebody, we'd sure like to have a missionary and we'd like one next month. You know, fat chance of that, but we'll come take a look anyways. And so Mark and I loaded up and we decided we'll take two of the Yemby Yemby believers with us and two of the guys from his tribe as well. And so we all loaded up into this airplane Airplane came over, picked up Mark, swung by, picked us up. We barely got off the ground. We're all heavy guys, and we got food loaded up because the hike was going to be longer than all get-out. And so we flew over Gatamambu and we're looking down on it, got in a good idea of how far we're going to have to trek, and we landed at this airfield called Ambunti, and then we started hiking. We hiked for one day. We overnighted in this place called Yarakai, Then we hiked for another day, and we hi- overnighted in this place called Yesimbit. And finally on the third day, we pulled into Gatamambu proper. And as we pulled into Gadamambu, guys, we were welcomed like conquering heroes. Um, guys were bringing pig meat out, sago, uh, a bunch of the ladies had cooked overnight because they'd seen the airplane and they knew something was up. They'd cooked overnight and uh, they'd cooked us a whole pile of grub worms. Um, <laughs> grub worms are just as nasty as you hear about them. They, they're not any good. Nobody's going to fake you out if a missionary comes and tells you they're great. He's lying to you. Don't listen to him. And uh, they cooked us all this stuff, and as we're going in, they're showering us. They've got coconut, uh, coconuts for us to drink and all sorts of things, and they're just treating us great, and there's these dancers on the side, guys that are doing this tribal dance of welcoming us, and everybody's painted up in jazz, and I'm feeling pretty cool. And my tribal father, Lucas, comes up behind me, and he pulls my sleeve, and he goes, he goes eldest son, that's what he calls me, eldest son. He goes, do you know what's going on? I go, no, they're, they're excited to see us. They're, they're excited. And he goes, no. He goes, they think you're the guys. What? What do you mean? They think you're the guys that are actually coming to be their missionaries. That's what they think. That's the rumor going around. And uh, we called over one of the chiefs and said, hey, hey, listen, listen, listen. We're here, but we're hiking out when the sun goes down twice. We're hiking out in two days. And we're heading back, and we're probably not going to come back. We're just here to take pictures, to write down some of your language on the paper, so that if somebody does come, they'll know what it is. And he hears it, and he, yeah, whatever. And he kind of stuffed it away, and he didn't tell anybody. Well, two days go past. We take all our video and all our pictures. And uh, the third day, we start packing our bags. And we're getting ready for two days of hiking to get out of there. And... uh there's a, the village starts to get a little tense and things start to get a little tight and they call a village meeting and they have this house called the house boy. It's where all the men, the chiefs and the up and coming chiefs are going to meet and for that occasion they made an exception for the ladies of the chiefs, the wives um, to come as well. And uh, we moved in or we came into the house boy and as we put our head in there's about 50, 60 guys in there and another 30, 40 ladies sitting in the background and we sat down And uh, the chief, the main guy of the the village, he stands up and he goes, guys, you really are leaving. We thought you were joking, but we're going to let you go. That's fine, but uh, we want to know how many days will it be till somebody comes back to give us this talk. And he worked it all through an interpreter, and it got to us. And I put my head down, and I look at Mark. Mark (laughs) looks at me, and uh, I tell him, man, (laughs) it's not going to be days. It's going to be a lot longer than that. And the guy wanted to be, he wanted specifics. He goes, Well, how many months is it going to be? What could we do? Could we send you back with pig meat? Could we send you back with grubs? Could we send you back with some of the special bark from our trees around here to ask somebody from America, from your country, to come and give us this talk? And I put my head down again and uh, I said, Guys, I, I don't think that would do much good. Uh, just keep sending your letters. Keep sending in the paper that it says you still are serious and you want missionaries. And finally, he's getting a little frustrated, and he goes, how long will it be? How long really will it be until somebody comes? And Pops Lucas, who was with me, he was part of the guys that used to write the letters for Yemby Yemby. And he goes, Brooks, he goes, eldest son, you need, to, you need to tell them true. You need to tell them honestly so they don't, they don't think it's going to be some sort of game. And Lucas said, I'll tell them. And Lucas got up and he said this, he said, look around, look around at the house boy. He goes, this is how long it will be. Look at everybody here with gray hair. If anybody here has gray hair, they're going to be dead before this talk gets to you. That's the truth. And everybody that worked its way through in translation got to the tribe, got to the chiefs. And you know what? Lucas is right. It will be, it will be probably seven I don't know, five, seven years before we even have a chance of getting the gospel to the Gadamambu people. Everybody there with gray hair is going to be dead before the gospel gets to them. That is the truth. And he told it to them straight. It was a little more than I was hoping for. But he told it to them very clearly. And as we hiked out, of Yim, or hiked out of Gadamambu, the welcome we had coming in versus how we left. People are crying. People are holding their doors shut. They don't want to see us. All the fun that was part of us arriving it was gone, and it was gone in spades when we hiked out of there. We are the only shot these guys got at hearing the gospel. I say we, and I mean the church. I mean the church that is here in the Western world. We have the resources. We have the knowledge. We have the ability to get this gospel to them. And, guys, I know I want to close with this. I know that uh, not every one of you are going to be missionaries. I think some of you in this group are. I think that because I think this is going to stay in the forefront of your guys' teaching. It's going to continue to be an issue that you talk about from the pulpit. It's going to continue to be something that you guys pray about, that you give towards, that you're active in. So I think there are going to be, there are going to be people from this group that are going to be raised up that are going to take the gospel to the God people. But some of you guys that are going to be here still, man, what do you do with these kind of things? Do you just feel guilty at the end of them. And wow, I feel really bad about that. What do I do? Well, guys, I think there's different areas that we can attack. I think we live sacrificially and we live intentionally in regards to world evangelization. What that means is I think as we spend our money, what goes to our 401k? What goes to our health insurance? What goes to this body? What goes to help somebody out from this group that's actually going to come out from among you. How you spend your money, spend it intentionally, spend it wisely, how you spend your time, what you do with your free time, what you do (coughs) in regards to helping out somebody that will come from this body. And the third thing that I want to hit really big is how you train your children. We head back in two months, and uh, let me tell you, Getting on the plane in LAX, if somebody tells you it gets easier every time, they're a liar. It gets harder every time to say goodbye to my mother and father, to watch them say goodbye to their grandson when we put him on the plane and knowing they won't see him for four years. It doesn't get easier. It gets harder. But we were raised with a way of thinking that there, there's going to be a cost to this. If there's not a cost to it, it's not of much value. There will be a cost. And for you guys to be intentional about how you teach your children, that doesn't mean a book about Jim Elliott every other year or the story of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs once in a while. That means teaching your children what you hold valuable, what you hold true. That it is okay to give your life for some of these things. I remember when we showed the Yemi Yemis. We, we, sh- we used to show them videos before the teaching just to open their worldview. And we showed them this movie called Glory. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Some of you guys have seen the, um, the thing. It's really, really good. It's about the first black regiment in the Civil War that fought for the north. And these guys stormed the walls of this uh, citadel down in the south. And every one of them died to a man. Were cut down by the guns of the south. And our guys are watching this and they're weeping as they watch this because they have no concept of living for something and dying for it and it being worth dying for. We've got to impress that into our children, guys, that there is something worth dying for greater than the dollar bill, greater than the American dream. We train our children that to be good kids, to grow up and not to get divorced, not to have a jail record and to attend church all the time, that's not the height of Christianity. The height of Christianity is to actually take the words that we hear and hear, and we apply them to our lives. And for you as a body, as you send somebody out, you send them to Sudan, you send them to Papua New Guinea, you send them to Kenya, they get sick, they get hurt, they don't come back, that's okay. We're addicted in the United States, I fear, to happy endings, that things end happily for us. And guys, that's just not the case. Our God has given us a job to do. And sometimes things go well, sometimes they don't go well. Sometimes they don't finish well. But to press that into our kids at a young age, we will be proud of you for these types of lifestyles, for these things, to sacrifice for these things. Our God is about those things. And guys, we are the plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We press that into them. Let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. For this body, for the teaching, for the background that they have, Lord. For the way that you have raised up their leaders here, Lord. And Lord, we pray from this body that you would raise up some. That you would raise up some to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To take it to a place that has never had a chance to hear. But Lord, beyond that, we pray for the ones that stay behind. That they would continue to sharpen themselves to be intentional about what they teach their children, what they put in front of themselves, to be about getting the gospel to the last places that have never had a chance to hear, Lord. We pray for this body. Bless it mightily, we ask. Look after the ones here. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that when you come someday, we would be so elated about the sacrifices and the way that we lived our lives while we were still here. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. Amen.